Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On a cold, drizzly morning, an 80-vehicle convoy, which included two trucks hauling cattle trailers, barreled down a dusty road in central Texas. As they approached their destination, ATF agent Pete Mastin, dressed in full battle gear, peered through a slit in the canvas that concealed him and his colleagues. It was eerily quiet outside. There was no one around. Suddenly, the front door of the main building opened. A man with long, dark hair and glasses yelled something and then slammed the door shut. What happened next is highly contested to this day. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on this episode, the final part in our series on the rise of doomsday cults at the end of the 20th century. Today, I want to tell you how an attempt to serve a search and arrest warrant turned into a 51-day siege that ended in tragedy. This is the story of the Branch Davidians. The Branch Davidians are synonymous in many ways to David Koresh. But they actually existed long before him. They were founded by Victor Hodef in 1930 as an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists, a Christian religious movement that believes in the second coming of Christ, and they currently have about 19 million members worldwide. Hodef joined the Seventh-day Adventists after moving to the U.S. from Bulgaria, but he disagreed with certain aspects of their theology, and he felt they weren't conforming to the teachings of the church. He suggested some reforms and was kicked out. That's when Hoda formed a group he called the Davidians. As a first step, he bought a 77-acre piece of property near Waco, Texas. He called it Mount Carmel, after the biblical mountain of the same name in northern Israel. And he moved with his followers to the semi-communal farm and compound. There they would await the apocalypse and the return of the Messiah, after which he said they would build the divine kingdom. But things sort of fell apart for the Davidians after Hodef died in 1955. There was a leadership struggle between his wife Florence and a follower named Benjamin Rodin. Florence eventually left Mount Carmel, relinquishing power to Rodin, who began calling the group the Branch Davidians. When Rodin died in 1978, his wife Lois took over. So Lois was the leader when, in 1981, a young drifter by the name of Vernon Howell showed up at the Branch Davidians. Howell was a wannabe rock musician who had grown up a troubled child of an unwed teenage mother in Dallas. According to an article in the Smithsonian Magazine, he was severely abused by his mom's violent alcoholic boyfriend. Howell also had a learning disability and was bullied at school. He eventually dropped out of high school and became a born-again Christian. Then he joined the Southern Baptist Church, but eventually he switched to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There, he became infatuated with the pastor's daughter and aggressively pursued her. That led to him being expelled from the church. And that's when 23-year-old Vernon Howell found the Branch Davidians. <laughs> 
Powell claimed he had the gift of prophecy, and he knew the Bible inside and out. In fact, he said he memorized the Old and New Testaments by the time he was 18. And as a result, he could quote scripture for just about anything. In 1984, at the age of 26, he married his first wife. Rachel Jones was 14 years old at the time, and she was the daughter of two fellow followers. They soon had two children, a boy they named Cyrus and a girl called Star. The charismatic young man rose up the ranks of the Branch Davidians, which was still controlled by Rodin's wife, Lois. But sensing trouble, Lois's adult son, George, put a stop to Howell's ascent by kicking him out of the Branch Davidians, along with anyone who was loyal to him. Then on the morning of November 3, 1987, Howell and seven of his followers crawled onto the Mount Carmel property, dressed in camouflage and combat boots with charcoal smeared on their faces and their arms. They were armed with military-style rifles and shotguns. They were there as part of a plan to take over the compound so Howell could assume control of the Branch Davidians. Details are kind of sketchy, but we do know there was an exchange of gunfire that lasted for several minutes, and it left George Roden, who is now the leader, slightly wounded. In the end, Howell was successful, and he stepped in as the new leader of the Branch Davidians. Shortly after the takeover, Howell looked to the biblical kings David and Koresh and legally changed his name to one that would forever be associated with violence and death. He became David Koresh. As leader of the Branch Davidians, David Koresh claimed he was the Lamb of God from the book of Revelation. He said he was the only one who could open the seven seals and set in motion events that would end mankind and propel his followers to heaven. Koresh told believers that the apocalypse was imminent and that God had willed the Branch Davidians to build an army of God. His followers were searching for meaning in their lives. They were mostly in their 20s and 30s and came from middle-class backgrounds. And in Koresh, they found the answers they were looking for. They believed he was the chosen one and would lead them through the upcoming apocalyptic battle into heaven. You have to understand, these people believe that God has various incarnations as the Word. And David Koresh, who was the latest incarnation of the Word, that meant in some sense he was God. So if he told people anything, they cooperated with him. That's Dick Rivas. He's a retired journalist and professor who was working at the Texas Monthly Magazine during the standoff at Waco. He wrote one of the definitive investigative books about the siege called The Ashes of Waco. Rivas says Koresh controlled everything. Former followers have said that he instructed them what to wear, where they could sleep, and what they could eat. In fact, sugar, processed flour, and dairy products were all forbidden. And if those extensive rules weren't enough, the living conditions inside the compound were pretty bare bones. The, the best description comes from Steve Schneider, Koresh's right-hand man, who said it was like camping indoors. And he said they had electricity, but they didn't have any heating or anything like that. No air conditioning. They had 
no running water. They had to get it from a well. And it was a ramshackle building anyway. So I think camping indoors is a pretty good description. Koresh prophesied that he would have 24 children who would play an integral part of the end times. They were meant to be the 24 elders mentioned in the book of Revelation, the ones who witnessed the last judgment. In order to produce those children, he mandated that his male followers become celibate, even those who were married, and he took multiple wives from the ranks of his followers. Some of his wives were girls as young as 12 years old. Riva says Koresh believed his actions were justified. I'm telling you the things they said. My opinions aren't entering in. But they said if you look at the Bible, when a, a girl is physically capable of becoming a mother, she's an adult. He could have been arrested for that because it's statutory rape. But the thing was, none of the parents of those children would complain. And the local child welfare authorities knew what was going on, but they couldn't get a complainant. Child welfare authorities also heard rumors of child abuse inside the compound, that children were being struck with a wooden paddle known as the helper when they misbehaved. But just like with the sex abuse allegations, authorities didn't have the evidence they needed to step in. In May 1992, authorities were tipped off by a UPS driver who regularly delivered ammo, gun parts, and chemicals to Mount Carmel. He became unnerved when hollowed-out grenades spilled out of a torn box in his delivery truck. You see, because Koresh believed the apocalypse was coming, he felt it was necessary to prepare by stockpiling weapons. But there was something else going on, too. Some of the members were converting AR-15s to fully automatic weapons, and that's illegal. They were also selling them at gun shows as a way to make money for the organization. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or ATF, soon discovered that the Branch Davidians had purchased nearly 60 assault rifles and parts to build many more. They also had purchased 11 pistols, hundreds of magazines, night vision gear, and 120,000 bullets. By the fall of 1992, the chief federal prosecutor in Waco reviewed the ATF's findings and concluded there was probable cause for a search warrant for federal weapons violations. But they wanted more evidence, so they sent agents on an undercover operation. The agents posed as college students and moved into a farmhouse across the road from the Mount Carmel compound. They watched the Branch Davidians, who in turn started watching them. The operation wasn't so undercover after all. Koresh was well aware he was under surveillance. At the same time that the ATF was keeping an eye on the compound, a local newspaper, the Waco Tribune Herald, was working on an investigative series about Koresh. The ATF asked the paper to hold off on publishing until after a raid took place, but the paper refused. So on Saturday, February 27th, the paper ran an article with the headline, The Sinful Messiah. It included allegations from former members that Koresh had physically and psychologically abused children and had at least one underage wife. It also criticized authorities for not taking action to protect the children and bring Koresh to justice. 
Under mounting pressure, the ATF finally decided it was time to act. They believed that a surprise raid would be the best way to move in and take the weapons without casualties. But the ATF weren't aware that the group had already been tipped off. They knew about the raid. Koreshina's followers were armed and ready for a gunfight with agents. As the ATF made their final preparations, they were told Koresh knew they were coming. But with the plan already in motion, they decided not to call it off. ATF agents would go on to testify in court and at congressional hearings that on February 28, 1993, as they stepped out of the cattle trailers, they heard pop, pop, pop as bullets flew past them and kicked up dirt. They say they saw muzzle flashes in two upstairs windows and started firing back. Branch Davidians say they did not shoot their weapons until they were fired at first. And right after the raid, ATF agent Roland Ballesteros told an investigator that a fellow agent may have in fact fired the first shot when he killed a dog outside the compound. The agent later retracted the statement, though, and said it was the Branch Davidians who shot first. Either way, before the day was over, 10 people were dead. Four agents and six Branch Davidians. Dozens were injured in the chaotic firefight, including David Koresh, who had been shot in the side. Much of the raid was videotaped by a cameraman who was on the scene. He had been tipped off about the ATF operation by his girlfriend, who was an ambulance dispatcher. Dan Maloney and reporter John McLemore followed the caravan of ATF agents onto the compound, expecting to document a typical seizure of illegal weapons. Instead, they documented the 60-minute gunfight and witnessed one of the most ferocious gun battles in American law enforcement history. You might remember some of the footage. Maloney and McLemore captured Agent Bill Buford, a former Green Beret, leading a team of agents up ladders and onto the roof so they could access a second-floor window. This is where they believed the guns were stored. Once Buford went through the window, though, he saw mostly empty rows of gun racks. That's when Buford says gunfire exploded through the walls and floors. The dramatic video footage shows him crawling back out the window and falling from the roof to the ground. Buford had been hit in the hip. Three other agents were mortally wounded. After a ceasefire was called, the cameraman and reporter volunteered their Ford Bronco to transport three wounded agents to safety, including Buford, who was laid down wrapped in a blanket across the front hood of the vehicle. Maloney and McLemore were considered heroes, but only for a short time. The next day, on March 1st, ATF agents defended the botched raid. The main problem we had, uh, I don't believe, is that we were outmaneuvered or outplanned. The problem we had is that we were outgunned. Despite the defense of the raid, later that day, the ATF was relieved of its duty. The FBI took command and continued negotiations. By now, officials were also partly blaming Maloney and McLemore for the disastrous operation. It seems that the morning of the raid, when they were on their way to the compound, they had stopped and asked for directions. And that may have tipped off the Davidians. From inside the Branch Davidian compound, Koresh's right-hand man, Steve Schneider, called the local radio station. 
Nobody in this group has ever harmed or hurt anybody ever for no reason. Not David Crush, not anybody here. I mean, it was such a shock to all of a sudden hear this bang, bang, bang. It's just, you know, rapid fire, and it was coming from all over. Within 24 hours, 14 children came out of Mount Carmel. Over the next four days, another seven were released. But all of Koresh's children remained inside. He refused to send them out. Instead, he made videos explaining his beliefs and sent those out to agents. In one, Koresh is seen sitting on the floor with his back against a wall, wearing a white tank top and looking thin and unkempt. Next to him is a young woman. They both have children on their laps as Koresh announces that he wants to introduce the world to his family. Then a parade of toddlers and babies comes into the frame. Some of the children even wave at the camera. Then they are joined by two other young women. Koresh looks at the camera and says, This is my family, and no one is going to come in on top of my family and start pushing my family around. It's not going to happen. Koresh then puts on a pair of aviator glasses and continues. I'm the kind of guy that I'll stand in front of a tank. You can run over me, but I'll be biting one of the tracks. No one's going to hurt me or my family. That's, 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 that's American policy here. You could have arrested me any day as I jog up and down this road. You could have arrested me going to town or going to Walmart. Waco is going to bear witness against the ATF. And I do not appreciate it, and never will I ever appreciate somebody coming here with two helicopters and cattle trailers and all that, and uh, pushing people around with guns. Hey, I'll meet you at the doorstep any day, you know, and somebody will get hurt. If you want to keep playing that game, I'm talking to you. Somebody's going to get hurt. Eventually, the FBI struck a deal with Koresh. They said he could make a recording laying out his beliefs that would be broadcast on national TV and radio. Once it was played, Koresh would lead his followers out of the complex. I, David Koresh, agree upon the broadcasting of this tape to come out peacefully with all the people. The statement lasted 58 minutes, during which Koresh spoke in a sing-song voice about biblical history. So that all who would break the law of God, who would seek God for forgiveness and pardon, had to bring a lamb, something innocent, and slay it. After the message played, Koresh did not hold up his end of the bargain. God told him not to come out. And, and apparently God didn't explain why. And I have never been able to decide how much of David uh, Koresh was sociopath and how much was believer, meaning it is possible that he thought he heard God tell him that, but it's also possible he just made it up because he didn't want to come out. By now, the FBI had assembled what is thought to have been the most powerful military force assembled against American civilians. According to The New Yorker, They brought in 10 Bradley tanks, two Abrams tanks, four combat engineering vehicles, and nearly 900 law enforcement officials from various agencies. On March 9th, 10 days into the standoff, the on-scene commander decided to raise the stakes and cut electricity to the buildings. 
They also tried to force the Davidians out of the compound by shining bright lights through the night and blasting music and odd sounds like dentist drills, Tibetan chants, and screaming rabbits being slaughtered. In the years since the standoff, experts have suggested that the federal agents didn't really comprehend the extent of the Davidians' religious zeal, or the fact that violence from authorities only confirmed their belief in the impending apocalypse. Dick Rivas agrees. The FBI and the ATF both are used to surrounding the houses of criminals with, you know, 20 agents. And then they holler through a megaphone, we've got you surrounded, surrender. And your typical drug dealer or any other hoodlum calls his lawyer on the cell phone. The lawyer says, surrender, (laughs) right? But they were dealing with a group of people who thought that they were the army of Babylon. And the Bible tells them to defend the faith. So they did. Not long after the siege began, James Tabor, a biblical scholar and an expert on the types of beliefs shared by the Branch Davidians, heard Koresh talking on CNN about the Seven Seals. He was concerned that both the FBI and the media had very little understanding of what they were dealing with. Tabor and Philip Arnold, another religious scholar, contacted the FBI and offered to assist with negotiations. The FBI turned them down. Rivas and others have also taken issue with the way the Davidians were portrayed in the media during the standoff. Every day during the siege, the FBI held live news conferences that focused on the narrative that Koresh was a crazy cult leader abusing children and stockpiling weapons. The media picked up on the narrative and ran with it, leaving little room for any empathy for his followers. They too were painted with the same brush, crazy cult members who deserved what they got. Towards the end of March, the FBI allowed Koresh to meet with his attorney and they came up with a new plan. Koresh promised that he would exit the compound after he had written his interpretation of the seven seals referenced in the Book of Revelation. By now, the FBI had run out of patience. They figured it was another empty promise from Koresh, so they turned to Attorney General Janet Reno. They cited ongoing reports of child abuse and feared of a Jonestown-style mass suicide. They asked for permission to use tear gas to flush out Koresh and his followers. With the approval of President Bill Clinton, Reno gave them the green light. As the sun rose on the 51st day of the standoff, an FBI agent made a phone call to the Mount Carmel compound. Steve Schneider picked up the phone on April 19, 1993. He was told an FBI tactical operation was about to begin, but it was not an assault. Schneider hung up the phone and threw it out the window. Then the agent got on the loudspeaker and issued a warning. David, individuals inside the Branch Davidian compound. We are in the process of placing tear gas into the building. Exit the compound now. Submit to the proper authority, David. Then modified tanks moved toward the complex. They rammed holes in the walls of the sprawling building. 
The tanks were equipped with a gas generator that sprayed a fine mist of tear gas into the building. The FBI would later insist they did not throw highly flammable tear gas grenades into the building. David Thibodeau was inside the compound when the agents stormed in. It's his biography that the recent Netflix miniseries on Waco is based on. He says a tank came in through the front doors and just blew everything back. The attack continued for hours, spraying more and more tear gas into the building, but no one came out. Around noon, four hours into the operation, a set of fires broke out within the compound. Aided by strong winds, the blaze moved quickly, engulfing everything in flames. The Davidians were trapped. Only nine people managed to escape. David Thibodeau was one of them. 75 others died, including 25 children. Many died from smoke and carbon monoxide inhalation. Others were buried alive in a concrete bunker which collapsed in the basement. And five children and 12 adults died from gunshot wounds, including David Koresh, who was shot in the forehead. His body was found in the communication room on the first floor of the building, near the door. A rifle was found on the floor near his body. Steve Schneider died of a gunshot wound to the mouth. His body was also found in the communication room. Charges and countercharges followed the incident, from congressional hearings to court cases. How the fire started and whether federal agents or the Davidians were responsible for the deadly outcome was hotly contested. At congressional hearings in 1993 and again in 1995, officials stressed that all forms of tear gas used against the sect were not incendiary. Attorney General Janet Reno testified in 1993 that she wanted and received assurances that the gas and its means of use were not pyrotechnic, meaning they could not have started the fires. Recordings were also released that were made by listening devices that had been placed in the compound by the FBI. They're basically snippets of conversations among Davidians that sound like they're talking about lighting fires. The transcripts provided by authorities read like this. Need fuel. Do you want it poured? Have you poured it yet? David said we have to get the fuel on. You have to spread it all, so get started, okay? And in another damning piece of evidence against the Davidians, an overhead aerial infrared camera showed that the fires started simultaneously at three different locations around the building. But this evidence didn't stop conspiracy theorists and others who believed the FBI was to blame. And then in a shocking turn of events in August 1999, six years after the deadly siege, the FBI reversed its position and admitted agents had in fact fired a very limited number of potentially incendiary tear gas cartridges into the complex. The admission came after Danny Colson, a former FBI senior official, told a Dallas newspaper in an interview that two devices, known as CS tear gas grenades, were fired at the complex around 6 a.m., and they were used with permission from supervisors. Two days after that interview, the FBI confirmed what Colson said was true, but they maintained that none of their munitions started any of the fires 
because flames broke out hours after the cartridges were fired. As a result of this new admission by the FBI, Attorney General Reno ordered a special counsel investigation into the FBI's actions to determine once and for all who was to blame for the tragic ending. In his final report released in July 2000, John C. Danforth, a former Republican senator, concluded that the FBI did not start the fire that destroyed the compound. He told a crowded news conference, We are certain, and I give you these conclusions with 100% certainty, the blame rests squarely on the shoulders of David Koresh. The report concluded that FBI agents fired three tear gas grenades at a construction pit about 75 yards from the living quarters, hours before the fires, and did not contribute to them. Danforth said that Janet Reno and other high-ranking government officials had not known about the use of grenades. But he did criticize FBI officials for not coming clean sooner about the pyrotechnic canisters because it fueled lingering suspicions about the siege. He said the American people did not receive the openness and candor that they deserved in response to this tragedy. The Waco tragedy became something of a rallying cry for those who were concerned about unlawful government overreach. For right-wing militias and patriot groups, Waco was evidence that the federal government is a threat and proof that a tyrannical, illegitimate government was prepared to kill its own people. For them, the Waco siege, along with what happened in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, were defining moments. A year earlier, in the summer of 1992, things went horribly wrong when ATF agents and U.S. Marshals went to Ruby Ridge to arrest right-wing activist Randy Weaver for selling illegal weapons. Weaver had taken his family to live in a remote cabin instead of showing up to court to face weapons charges. U.S. Marshals, who were monitoring Weaver and his family, ultimately got into a firefight with him, a friend, and Weaver's 14-year-old son. It resulted in the death of both a U.S. Marshal and the 14-year-old son. The gunfight prompted an 11-day standoff before Weaver and his friend surrendered. During the standoff, an FBI sniper attempted to hit the two men. Instead, though, he shot and killed Weaver's wife as she held the couple's 10-month-old child. The actions by agents at Ruby Ridge and at Waco outraged militia groups and other fringe segments of society. Timothy McVeigh was one of those drawn to Waco. In fact, the Army veteran had been worried about what he saw at Ruby Ridge and went down to Waco to sell pro-God and anti-government stickers and witness the siege. Then, two years later, in 1995, in Oklahoma City, he was responsible for one of the worst acts of homegrown terrorism as he bombed a government building, in part as a direct response to Waco. The ironic thing is, Koresh and the Branch Davidians actually had no links to any of those movements. Here's Dick Rivas. They are not right-wing or left-wing or anything like that. They're Davidians. And all the gun rights people take them as heroes. And it doesn't make sense. David, uh, of course, was a gun nut. All Texas rednecks are. And they bought up AR-15s partly because in case the army of Babylon ever attacked them, but also to sell. So 
how do you say, they weren't gun rights people, they were profiteers. Since Ruby Ridge and Waco, the ATF and FBI have handled other standoffs very differently. In 1996, a group called the Montana Freeman started a standoff with federal officials rather than get evicted from a foreclosed ranch. This time, the FBI waited them out. The confrontation lasted 81 days, 30 days longer than Waco, and this time, everybody walked out. Nobody was harmed. And this new playbook was used again in 2014 in Oregon when Cliven Bundy and other protesters occupied a federal wildlife refuge. It also ended peacefully after a 41-day standoff. After the siege in Waco ended, eight members of the sect were convicted on charges of voluntary manslaughter and using firearms in the commission of a crime. By 2007, all had been released from prison. Some survivors of the group stayed in the Waco area and remained devout, like Clive Doyle and Sheila Martin. Doyle lost his daughter in the blaze while Martin lost her husband Wayne, a Harvard-educated lawyer, and her four eldest children. They believe that at the end of days, Koresh and their loved ones will all be resurrected as martyrs. A new group of Davidians, who were not followers of Koresh, have built a chapel on the site of the former compound. This sect, which calls itself Branch, the Lord Our Righteousness, is led by Charles Pace, who is originally from Collingwood, Ontario. He's a former follower of Lois Roden, who initially parted ways with the group after Koresh came to power. Thanks for listening to this look back at the lasting and complicated legacy of the Branch Davidians and the siege at Waco, Texas. This is the fourth and final part in our series on doomsday cults at the end of the 20th century. I hope you liked it. Please check out the show notes for links to my guest, retired journalist and author Dick Rivas. His book on Waco is called The Ashes of Waco, an Investigation. Mr. Rivas, who was a civil rights worker with Dr. King's organization in Alabama in 1965 and 66, tells me that he spends his days now writing long Facebook posts. Thanks to everyone who's been sending me suggestions on show ideas. If you have an idea, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. You can also email me directly at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please feel free to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the show. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.